Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Beyond COVID podcast. My name is Akil Merchant, and I'm a student ambassador at CID. This podcast is a series of conversations with CID faculty experts on various key dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID Research Initiative is to make use of lessons learned and capitalize on emergent innovations sparked by the pandemic in order to address losses and reimagine global development in the post-COVID era. This week, we are joined by Zoe Marks, lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm sitting down with Zoe on November 10th, 2021 to discuss building a resilient education system. Zoe, thank you for joining us today. Your work focuses broadly on conflict throughout the African continent, and you've done a lot of work on the effects of war on post-conflict communities in Sierra Leone and the DRC. Can you share with listeners a broad description of some of your recent research efforts? Sure. One of the projects that I'm really excited about right now is working with a team that's in Northeast Nigeria in Maiduguri, which is the capital of Borno State. Borno has been sort of the heart of the Boko Haram conflict that a lot of people have heard of. It's an ongoing terroristic insurgency. And the project that I'm affiliated with is with UN University colleagues and another colleague who's based at the University of Illinois. What we're really looking at is the, the process of reintegration for people who have been fighting with or participating in or followers of Boko Haram who want to come back to civilian life. And I think this is sort of an overlooked element of conflict termination is this idea that a conflict mobilizes all these people for violence, but then societies have to reabsorb them and reabsorb them in a way that's peaceful and in a way that hopefully leads not only to economic growth, but to, you know, political and social healing. So that's one project that's really exciting. And another one that I'll mention quickly is looking at the role of women and gender diversity within large uprisings around the world. And so that is a quantitative project that's looking at a sort of cross-national data set from 1945 through 2018 on women's participation in mass movements. And so you've spoken a lot about the Boko Haram conflict and gender equality, both are great initiatives, but how have these particular projects shifted throughout COVID-19? Yeah, COVID was obviously disruptive in a lot of ways to people's research, but it also made us think more carefully about the nature of our collaborations with people, particularly in fragile contexts, and the types of priorities that we wanted to set during the pandemic. So I would say the women's participation in nonviolent resistance and violent uprisings, that project didn't change that much because we're actually collecting the data through existing sources. And so we were able to work with a fantastic team of interns this past summer and the year before. And the best thing, if we're looking for sort of ways to navigate a crisis was that we had a lot of students who were available to join us as research assistants, partly because of the sort of chaos that COVID caused in a lot of our students kind of professional planning. And so we were able to kind of build a team together and that was a really exciting way to stay agile and research active. On the other hand, the project in Northeast Nigeria really sort of slowed down as a result of COVID-19. It was difficult to get public health information. We didn't want any of our collaborators in the field to be out you know, contacting people for surveys when contacting people is one of the primary ways that the disease could spread. And so we really sort of pumped the brakes there, but have been able to kind of reanimate that research. 
And then the other thing I'll mention is that COVID-19 created, as I said, this sort of new set of challenges and the opportunity to shift our research skills into places where there was acute need. And so I started working with the government of Sierra Leone and specifically the Ministry of Basic and Senior Secondary Education, again, matching up some of the students who became newly available as a result of disruptions to their internships and helping to connect them with a kind of opportunity to work with that ministry on adapting education planning and programming in response to the pandemic in Sierra Leone. I wanted to highlight more about the effects of COVID-19 on education, just very broadly, and you can speak more about maybe particular developments that you've observed. How has COVID-19 influenced the quality of primary education? You've mentioned secondary education, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an education specialist, but we've seen the quality of education really plummet. And I think that what's important about how you phrase the question is it's not just about whether you can access education. We know that access really dropped off, but even the quality of education, there's not really been any successful substitute, I think, for the type of education that people had, that children had before the COVID pandemic led to shutdowns. And so part of that is because You know, there was overcrowding of schedules, of homes, of kind of all of the economic and other crises that were happening outside the household that started to affect children and families. But also whether you're learning remotely, if you have the means to have access to a tablet or a computer and internet, that education quality was often taxing children who didn't have the skills yet to learn in a virtual environment. They didn't have support or oversight because they didn't have caregivers. And then in in Sierra Leone, there's a huge proportion of the population that doesn't have access to internet or to the technology required to kind of do online learning. And so there the ministry was trying to be nimble and innovate with things like radio programming. But again, you've got this gap between the learning environment that the children are in and the kind of goals and ambitions of these technological stop gaps. So I think quality has been a really serious problem, and it's in in a lot of ways, the quality is not unrelated to the access issues. From the COVID-19 pandemic, we've kind of observed a shift where you see education within the home. And part of that means parents become increasingly involved with education. So how would you suggest COVID-19 has complicated the role of parents in maintaining their children's access to education? It's a great question. I think parents, particularly in the you know, majority of the world, or at least the majority of the world's population, which is the developing world or the sort of middle income countries, parents have sometimes been overlooked as key players in children's educational development and in their learning. And I think that COVID-19 might be an opportunity for us to reimagine or reconsider the ways that we involve parents in schooling. And this is particularly important in countries where the vast majority of learners are in public schools. Public schools are often highly regimented. They're teaching to standardized tests. Sometimes these standardized tests are actually even at the regional level. They're not even controlled locally or within the country. And so I think we can understand the history of alienation that would exclude parents from access to kind of involvement. A lot of these are countries where there have been historically low levels of adult and women's literacy. And so, you know, there's really a need that we've seen as a result of COVID to re-engage parents and to get their vested interests, not just in sending their children to school, but in sort of supporting learning more holistically. 
On the flip side, I think we've also seen parents, particularly here in the United States, kind of exercise enhanced political voice as a result of what's happened, you know, with the disruptions to their, their children's learning. And so it's something for people to consider as the sort of there's an educative benefit to parental involvement, but there's going to also be a sort of political spillover. And I'm not sure that we always think about both of those things at the same time. This was one of the main learnings, I guess, from the COVID-19 pandemic, that there's a dichotomy of the effects of parental involvement within education. But beyond parental involvement within education, what are some of the other learnings that we observed from the COVID-19 pandemic? I think there's maybe two things I'll say. One is this sort of takeaway that technology has come a long way. We've heard a lot of technological promises of like one tablet, one child, one tablet, or one school, one tablet, or one classroom, one tablet. And yet with all of those campaigns, with all of the kind of teching up of education throughout the world, and particularly throughout the global South, it wasn't matched up with actual delivery of content and with the ability to sustain learning without schools. So I think the importance of schools and particularly the importance of schools as a site of safety, as a site of holistic welfare, as a site of accessing things like food and nutrition and water and sanitation, I think that's been really sort of re-emphasized for me. I think the other thing that I would say is the sort of not learning. We don't know yet what the specific gendered consequences of the COVID disruption to learning will be. One of the things I was working closely with the ministry in Sierra Leone on was really trying to ensure that secondary school girls came back because there's a risk when school is disrupted that there will be an increase in the pregnancy rate, that there'll be a decrease in the graduation rate. And so there are these sort of complex phenomena that I think are still too soon to tell. And there have been disruptions to data access and to data collection. And so that's a real challenge for those who research education as their sort of primary focus, because if you can't collect data because of the COVID disruption, then it's difficult to find out sort of how to respond to the effects as they unfold and mitigate them. And from your discussion of kind of the gendered effects of education within Sierra Leone and how it can result in pregnancies and disruptions to education for females in secondary schools, I was wondering if you could talk more about how education impacts youth's long-term well-being in terms of success in the job market and other social factors, especially in the context of Sierra Leone? In Sierra Leone, just like any other country, literacy and numeracy are sort of the basic building blocks to economic self-sufficiency and the ability to kind of be a you know fully informed consumer and citizen and all of these things that we think are generally good for one's well-being in society. And so I think it's important to remember that when the quality of education in a country has historically been low, you have to go further in the education system in order to come out more literate, more numerate, with more math skills. And that's just with the sort of basic, you know, secondary and senior secondary education. The knock-on implications are that a lot of the sectors where we're seeing growth across Africa and other parts of the world are sectors where you're increasingly going to need a university or you know tertiary degree. And I think that the, the swelling of the sort of higher education sector around the world, it sort of follows on the heels of the growth of the higher education sector here in the United States. It's seen as the prerequisite for certain types of jobs. And so in order to maintain the dynamism of the economy, we want young people to feel empowered to be part of it and also to shape it. 
And so that's just one way from like an economic perspective. We think because we were just talking about gender, it's important to also note that a lot of these education outcomes are also tied to the ability to seek and pursue healthcare, to seek and pursue better housing and nutrition, to seek and pursue legal redress if there are you know, crimes in your community or injustices that you're affected by. And so I see it really in this sort of 360 degree view as any lost education is sort of a missed opportunity, not just for that individual, but for their household and their, therefore for their community as a whole. To further bounce off of your discussion about how we can broaden the effects of education and just the overall quality of life for families, do you think there are particular responses in the education sector that we've seen that can be applied to give relief to families beyond education itself? This kind of idea of task shifting within the education system so that the education system provides services for COVID-19 mitigation, hunger relief, emergency services, and especially within settings of political conflicts and just overall instability? That's a big question. I'll, I'll say like one of the immediate things that we saw as COVID-19 began to emerge was that school children became one of the primary vectors for explaining to their community the importance of hand washing, right? So it's the small detail where, you know, children are given water and health and sanitation and hygiene training as like almost a, you know, it's a major development intervention, but it's also almost forgettable when you think about the broad, you know, scope of the curriculum they have to learn as young people becoming adults in the world. But I think that's just one kind of concrete example of the way that what happens in schools flows back to communities and benefits them. And so schools can be important vectors of information, not only about health or access to vaccines, they can be important access points for healthcare more generally, particularly if there are community health workers or nurses who rotate between schools to seek out learners who might need access to contraception or access to other forms of kind of basic care and preventative medicine. And then I also think that, you know, schools can be a hub and a meeting place. And so that's not really how we've seen them function during this pandemic where social distancing is so important. But as we think about getting back together, strengthening civil society, it's important to remember the physical apparatus of a school serves communities in a big way. There's, you know, the football pitch where people play, it brings joy. There can be parent or community meetings held in the sort of amphitheater. So I think it's, it's really important to remember that the school is a service, not only for learners, but for this sort of broader dialogue between the resources and public goods that the state is supposed to provide and the community stakeholders who are there to receive them. I like how you talked about how education systems can be this great hub between the state, between students, between families, just various community stakeholders. And it's one of the major learnings that we can take away from the COVID-19 pandemic. Here at CID, we are aiming to remain more forward-looking in these conversations, to learn from the experiences around the world of this ongoing crisis particularly in the context of development. In your mind, what are the most important factors to building more resilient education systems for the future? I think that the nature of resilience, particularly systemic or systems level resilience, rather than the sort of resilience we push off onto impoverished communities who are just trying to survive. I think systems level resilience is always just defined by both and. 
right? The both and answers are that we need technology and we need schools and we need teachers who exist, who aren't kind of on ghost roles, these invisible employees, but who are well-trained and properly compensated for the sort of broader set of skills that they provide in a community. And so to me, educational resilience is not so much about kind of, okay, now we can do pandemics, are we ready for the next one? What about this other kind of natural disaster? What about climate crisis? It's really thinking, how are we excelling in a multidimensional way so that we're thinking of the future as we prepare our students and our learners also for the future? There's a tendency for all institutions to try to preserve the status quo. They're invested in the way things are. And I think that um, taking on a bit of the mission of what the teaching is actually aiming to prepare for is one of the best ways to build resilience. Well, thank you again to Zoe for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's Beyond COVID initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you back soon.